Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one podcast on planet Earth, proudly brought to you each and every week by Caffeine Gum Australia. Now, Caffeine Gum Australia is a product that I personally use, and we own a company, so of course we use it. It's something that I use a lot for the long drives to and from Newcastle this year while I was coaching the Hunter Wildfires. Uh, as well as training in the mornings as a as a really quick and healthy alternative to using coffee in the mornings. Uh, what I've found is it doesn't sit in your stomach like coffee will do. Uh, it's quick, it's easy, it's cheap, it's affordable, free delivery Australia-wide, 100 milligrams of caffeine per piece, comes in three great, great flavors, and it's batch tested, so it's suitable for athletes. So please check it out at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. This week's guest on the podcast is Mr. Anthony Eddy. Anthony is the current director of Symmetry Sports, a company focused on elite athlete management and representation, coach at high performance management, as well as performing high performance health assessments for both sporting teams and businesses. In his coaching career, Anthony has been the director of Rugby Sevens for the Irish Rugby Football Union, the national programs manager for Rugby Australia, the director of rugby for Sydney University, the head coach of the Worcester Warriors, as well as being the assistant coach for both the Brumbies and the Queensland Reds in Super Rugby. This is a highly enjoyable podcast, guys, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mr. Anthony Eddy. Mate, firstly, thank you very much for doing this. I've been very excited to talk to you uh, ever since we teed this up, mate. So firstly, let's start Let's start and give an overview of your coaching career, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um uh, it's long and rigmarole. Um, I'm a former teacher, like many other coaches. Um, so obviously, I coached at school level, then coached at first grade Colts, and then first grade uh, through Sydney University back in the late '90s and early 2000s. Um, during that period, when uni was just sort of starting to find their feet. Um, and then during that time as well, I was either working at New South Wales or with Australian Rugby when they just set up the high performance unit. So I also managed to coach Australian under-21s and Australian under-20s, Australia A, uh, coached at the Brumbies for a couple of seasons, um, the Reds, lucky enough to go overseas as well. So I spent um, a couple of seasons in the English Premiership. And more recently, Duncan, I've been pretty heavily involved in the sevens program. Um, so I coached the men and women sevens program in Ireland. So I was the director of sevens there. But also when I was at Australia, once that Olympic announcement came through, um, that excited me. So I, I was fairly interested and passionate about the sevens program. I see it as a great pathway for players to develop and move on to bigger and better things. Absolutely, mate. Sevens is, is an unreal way to see the world. Uh, unfortunately, I was never built for that side of the game, mate. What are you What are you doing now? You're back. You're back in Sydney. Um, how, how are you spending your time now? Yeah, I'm. I've back. Been back for about eighteen months, and um, I had a bit of time out, and then I set up a sports management business, Symmetry Sports. So, there's sort of three areas to that business, Duncan. One's just around high performance health assessments, just reviewing programs, whether they be club or professional environment, um, coach management. I often believe coaches are a bit of a neglected species. So 
I try to look after coaches and manage coaches and provide them with professional development opportunities. And the last part of that business is just player management, just using my experience and networks to try and develop the talent that um, that I have on my books. And then other than that, I'm also doing some work back at Sydney University Sport and Fitness as their um, as their manager for high performance. I want to I want to go into uh, some of the stuff in high performance because um, from what I've seen, I, only the last couple of years I've started to look into it, and it seems to be one of those subjects uh, that everyone looks at differently, and can often be a bit of a buzzword that they hope brings high performance. But just just with the management side of stuff, mate, I in what I do, I deal with a lot of player managers, but I don't deal deal with a lot of people that do coach management. Would you? Would you, when you were starting out, would you have found it beneficial to have, whether it's a manager or a mentor or whatever you want to call it, or someone to help guide you through some of the the difficult difficulties in being a coach? Because it is a challenging career. You, you yourself have been all over the world in both forms of the game. Yeah. How, how important do you think it is having someone to help guide you? Uh, Duncan, I think it's massively important. Um, whether whether they guide you or mentor you or or coach you or even sometimes just to be a sounding board um, for a coach or a player, I think it's really important for uh, someone in that position to have someone that they can trust um, their their opinion of and also just their their knowledge and expertise. Um, you know, and and with mentoring. Um, you know, that's a two-way process. So apart from, you know, being able to offer your own opinion and everything else, you need to be a very good listener um, and, you know, just guide people around what you p- potentially see as their their best avenue and uh, their best opportunities for the future. Sometimes, you're the, sometimes you can just be the devil's advocate and then um, that's the, the trigger that um, some coaches or players can rely on to progress to what they want to achieve. Do you think, do you feel like when you were coming through the coaching ranks that, that that was a little bit neglected potentially, maybe still is to some extent? I think it was. And Duncan, I think it still is. That's why I suppose a core part of the business that I've set up is around um, coach management. And as I said before, with that, um, I've tried to establish, I'm going to continue to establish a coaching network with um, the people that I have or my clients, but also be able to provide professional development through either Zooms or um, if a coach wants to go and see something in Europe, well, I'll you know put together a trip for them and put them in contact with the right people. Same as if you know other clients wanted to come down to Australia or New Zealand, I'd, I'd try and do something similar. Yeah, I, th- I think sometimes coaches, as I said, can be the neglected species, but they're such an integral part of you know a coaching program and ultimately our conversation around high performance what does high performance mean i i've i've <laughs> seen all sorts of, i listen to a very good podcast called the high performance podcast and the first thing that they ask every guest is what does high performance mean to you and every single guest gives a different answer so what does what does high performance mean well, it can be a bit of a buzzword, um, and it can mean so many things to so. You're right; it means so many things to so many people because you're you're in a different environment 
to what others might be. So, you know, you've got high-performing school programs, high-performing club programs, high-performing professional programs um, that are well-funded and well-resourced. So even if if you're not funded and resourced um, and have fantastic facilities, you can still have a high-performing program because, to me, it's about people. It's about the people who are in the positions um, of, of that program and ultimately they have accountability uh, for their position. They have good role clarity around what their job is. They do their, they do their job, they fit into that system and they're accountable through the processes and systems in place of that program. Why is it seemingly so difficult to create a high-performance team? Because it, obviously that's the, whether that's the word they use or not, everyone wants to be successful or, or likes the idea of being successful. Maybe they don't want to do what's required to be successful. But what, why is it seemingly so difficult? Yeah, that's a good question because, again, I'll go back to what I said before around the people Um if you have the right people in the right jobs and they have good role clarity and they understand where they fit within a system and they can get on and do their business, I think that helps uh, a high-performing environment. Um, if you don't have the right people um, in those positions, well, I don't think you're, you're going to have the success that you ultimately need or you ultimately want. But again, um, I suppose, you know, the establishment or the development of what you want to call a high-performing program, that all starts with a plan and it needs to be a good plan. It needs to be a detailed plan and yeah. people need to be brought on, on side with it and understand the strategy and understand the measures along the way as well um, because it's important to be able to look back and see where, where you've um, succeeded and where you've failed because there will be failure. Um, or not so much failure, but perhaps disappointment. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of moving parts to any any program, whether it be a high performing program or not. Um, and you need to make sure that all of those parts are in sync and aligned as much as possible with with what the ultimate strategy is. So so just say hypothetically, I'm I'm taking control of a business or an organisation, and I would like to turn it from you know average performing to high performing so the, the first step you'd take is you come up with a very good plan get buy-in from the, your uh, managers or your people then finding the appropriate people to fulfill the roles make it very clear what their role is and the systems and processes that they need to fulfill that role the 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 key the key thing and you've said it a couple of times is finding the right people now, sometimes the right person might not suit that environment, but they might suit another environment. How 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 do we find the right people? Now that that might be a very difficult question to answer, but is it is it a matter of working out what the role is, working out someone's personality type and whether they suit that role? Can you give us some insight into how we find the right people? Yeah, again, I think um, well, if you're going through a process or you know people. Often, you know, you can you know people and you can just sort of tap on the shoulder because you know that they, you know, in layman's terms, they get it. Um, they understand, you know, what's required in a in a sporting environment. And if you're talking about a professional sporting environment, 
Um, you know, that's a 24-hour-a-day job, seven days a week, really. So you need to have those people, um, you know, that are willing to, to sacrifice that. Um, so... And then, and again, you know, you know, just from your own background as well, Duncan. Like people, you want people in your organisation that you believe are going to fit and do do the right thing, and also, you know, un understand the ambition of the business or the program that you're setting up, and and have the same ambition um, as what you do. How so? You spent a lot of time in Ireland. Obviously, they've had a huge amount of success over the last World Cup cycle, probably didn't go as well as they'd hoped at the last World Cup. But that wasn't something that happened overnight, the success that they had from what I could see. In the early days when, when obviously you were involved with the sevens, but I'm sure there was, um, you know, some interaction with the 15 side of the game. What what did they get right? What was the, what were the initial steps that Ireland took? And how did they get the buy-in for this plan, which was clearly something that was building over many years? Yeah, I think um, look, they've got a lot of things right. There's no doubt about it. There's probably if you know if you quiz them, there's probably other things that they'd like to improve on or, or modify um, to give them you know greater success. But it's a small country population-wise, but also geographically, it's a small country which is an advantage, um, I believe. And coming from Australia, um, with the geography of Australia, that's always a challenge. But I Ireland and New Zealand, small countries, small populations, they're probably in a good position uh, with what they do with their rugby programs. The other thing around Ireland, Dunk, is um, they don't have too many competitors, really. Um, you know, in, terms Gaelic, of other, in terms of other sports? Yeah, in terms yeah. of other sports. So the Gaelic Games is massive. Um in both the men's and the women's side of things, but they're amateur sports, they're non-contact sports. Um, you know, obviously soccer's another professional sport in that country, but, you know, you're not competing with rugby league or Aussie rules or, um, you know, any of those sorts of sports. So rugby is probably the premier uh, professional sport in that country. And again, they have a good school system, but also they have um, good alignment from the top down. At the end, at the end of the day, uh, everything revolves around wearing a green jersey, and people are sort of again people and accountability. They're accountable for ensuring that they're uh, developing players to wear green jerseys rather than potentially blue, red, white, whatever it might be, um, green. You know, was so, it always was it always like that? Um, it, it probably wasn't, but during my time, like they've got a, you know, a, a good high performance director over there, um, who I know very well. They've had fantastic coaches in Joe Schmidt and now in Andy Farrell, um, who are, you know, uh, very sharing of their ideas and get around to the provinces and work well with the provinces. Um, but again, at the end of the day, you know, the, the CEOs and the coaches through the provinces and the sports medicine and the strength and conditioning and all those sorts of things, they're all aligned through the governing body, through the national organisation. So um, they've got a wonderful contracting model as well where 
you know, the buck more or less stops just with the Irish rugby union. So, yeah. um, yeah, there's a, there's one person making a lot of decisions and, um, uh, thankfully for Ireland, they've had been successful, very successful in recent times. So yeah, it's been great for them. Well, it's, it's clear that what they've done has been working. One of the things you said a couple of times there is alignment. Why, why is it difficult? Why is it potentially difficult to get alignment? And what are some of the additional benefits that having everyone flowing in the same direction can get? Obviously, New Zealand's a terrific example of that. Ireland are a terrific example of that. But it doesn't seem like many other places are getting that. Why, why is that difficult? Well, I suppose, well, you know, governance structures can sometimes make that challenging for different organisations. Um, yeah. And then also, um, I think some organisations don't see the benefit of what you and I were talking about there with the, the alignment. Um, they often, you know, it's it's human nature. Some people think that they can do it better than others. Um, yeah. And, and, they, and they possibly can, but if, as long as they're willing to still share their ideas um, around what they're doing that's making them so successful, well, the other teams in that country can, can um, you know, jump on the back of that as well and leverage from that so they continue to be successful. But ultimately, it's, it's how those plans are being executed are going to determine whether they're successful or not. Um, yeah. But with the, with the actual alignment, um, again, to have consistency in a playing pathway, I think, is extremely important. Uh, consistency in your messaging, consistency in your coaching, consistency in your your sports science and your data and your rehab programs with players um, rather than, you know, players jumping all over the place and, you know, ultimately picking up soft tissue injuries or whatever it might be. So to have those sorts of things in place where, you know, everybody again can have some buy-in to it. Um, ultimately makes life a lot easier for the system to function well, but also for the players. The, the other thing I've found interesting uh, observing, and you just mentioned a couple of really good names in Joe Schmidt and Andy Farrell there, but the Irish seem to have a willingness to look outside for good ideas, whether that's bringing yourself or Dave Nusifor in, you know, Nick Winkleman, who's, who's apparently one of the very best in what he does. Uh, Jack Noinaba, I hope I said his name right, uh, into Coach Leinster, uh, is that something that they've always had, a willingness to look outside, or is that only a recent thing? No, I think they always have because there's always been, well, traditionally there's been a lot of coaches that have gone over there uh, to their provinces. Australia's had a lot of success with different coaches and players particularly that have gone over there um, going back, you know, into the late 90s, I suppose, as well. Um so I think they've always been open to uh, looking at, you know, different ideas and um, other nationalities coming in and doing their coaching um, because that's ultimately helped them to where they are today. Um, but having said that too, I've got to say there's there's a good coaching program internally as well where they get some very good coaches themselves. Um and, the, and you know full well too. The Irish travel pretty well, so if they're not in Ireland, they're probably you know wandering around some other rugby country coaching or playing. They're all, all in Bondi. Hey, yeah. um, looking at the World Cup, obviously it was they were held up more away from making the semis. 
and and arguably, you know, the game of the tournament, uh, probably the game of the year. Yeah. What why why was their World Cup not successful, or was it a matter of just you know bad? It wasn't even a bad day. They still played well. It was like a tiny little moment. Was the difference between making the semis and or potentially the finals? How did you how did you look at it? Yeah, look, they'll conduct a review of that um, and come up with their own answers. But there are probably quite a few little moments in that game. Mm. Um, you know, they, there was a, a try off a line out, um, a few other little bits and pieces early on in the game where it probably wasn't, it didn't reflect the Irish team of um, previous test matches during recent test matches anyway. Um, but yeah, they managed to get back into that game pretty well. And then, as you say, there was a held up um, mall. But um, look, they've had such great success over the last two or three years, having won test series in New Zealand and South Africa and everything else. And it just wasn't, you know, bounce of the ball sometimes can be be a challenge. And I think um, they could probably look back on the World Cup of 2023 and say, well, it just we weren't, it wasn't our day. We we were good enough. Um, and they they are and they were, but it just um, wasn't to be. Whereas previous World Cups, um, you know, they haven't progressed past the quarterfinal, but um, maybe previous World Cups they weren't good enough. Whereas you know this one they certainly were, but it was just one of those things. It was, it was certainly an amazing game. Do you do you think that we put too much emphasis on World Cups? And it's hard to say that because you look at you look at Ireland and go, they be, they have legitimately up there with France being the best team in the world for the last two or three years, even the start of this year. And then they go to a World Cup and two or three moments are the difference between, you know, a really good World Cup or not or not having a good World Cup. But do you think that, that teams are potentially putting too much into World Cup success? It's hard to argue against not putting so much emphasis into a World Cup because at the end of the day, you know, it is a World Cup and it only happens once every four years for them. Um, So I look, you know, I suppose you've you've got to put a lot into it. Um, And if you're successful, well, you know, that's great. But if you're unsuccessful, well, you live with the disappointment, you learn from it and you move on, you know, to execute a plan for the next four years, I suppose. But it's a little. It's still. It's a little bit like club footy as well. You know, you can have a wonderful season, and um, you get to that one game, and suddenly, for whatever reason, the stars aren't aligned or whatever, and um, you don't perform the the way that you should. And again, you've you've got to go back to the drawing board again the following year. So I suppose, I suppose. you know we're, we're lucky enough to be in a position where we can do it annually, or other coaches they can do it annually. Whereas, yeah, sometimes with the World Cup, you've got to wait for another four years. I suppose that's why it's so addictive being a coach, isn't it? Because you can be great all year and then you have a bad day and you lose and you don't know what you did or you can have a good day and you're like, oh, yeah. I'd like to I'd like to replicate that. Mate, tell me about Dave Nusifora. He's uh, done amazing work with Irish rugby over a long period of time. Tell us about the man. Tell us about what it's been like working with him. Yeah, what what did you learn from him? Yeah, um, yeah, he's done a great job with Ireland, no doubt about that. Um, you know, they've um, they've been lucky enough to have him now, I think, for about ten years. So he's put a lot of effort and work into what um, has been set up there. Um, he and I go back a long way, so we've um, 
probably worked together and been associated uh, since the early 2000s, I guess. Um, we coached at the Brumbies together, worked at the ARU together, uh, and then and then obviously worked in Ireland together. So we have a good working relationship. We're very like-minded um, when it comes to high performance and, and just the game of rugby. We see the game very similarly, um, have similar thoughts around, you know, the talent and um, what it takes to to get the talent to the, the top level. Um, yeah, so we've had a good working relationship for a number of years. Mate, tell me, we talked a little bit about alignment. Uh, I guess centralization is a bit of a hot topic at the moment. What what is is centralization just another word for alignment? Do you think, or is is there some benefit to having that? What's what what are some of the potential downsides? And do you think every nation can do centralization similar to like New Zealand or your Irish can? Um, I think well, centralization can mean a lot of things as well. Um, it's it's yeah, it is more or less just alignment. Um, mm. But I suppose the word centralization means that it's they're trying to make more accountability around what that alignment looks like, I, I would say. Um, and it's not for everybody. I think if we're if we're looking specifically at you know the game of rugby worldwide, well, every country is different. Every country needs to figure out um what 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 works for them and what's not going to work for them. I don't think um anyone should look at what New Zealand have done in the past or what Ireland are doing now or the French and say, oh, we're going to copy exactly the same thing because it's that's not going to work. Um, yeah. You need to understand what your own DNA is within your the rugby environment that you're involved with. Um, but, yeah, look, I don't, um, I don't necessarily think that uh, the term centralisation means you're going to have success um, again, it goes goes back to having the right people in the right jobs and um, understanding what the high performance environment looks like. And I think everybody would would um, uh, benefit from certain parts of alignment or centralisation um, through either employment contracts or contracting models or sports science, sports medicine systems, those sorts of things. Um, it is it is hot on the agenda at the moment, particularly in Australia, and I suppose the extent of what that looks like um, we'll see at some stage. But, um, yeah, you can pick and choose as to what's going to be a priority for you in the short term. The 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 understanding your own DNA side of that uh, strikes me as quite important, similar to just trying to, to cut and paste the style of play from, you know, New Zealand or South Africa or Ireland. I guess if it doesn't suit who you are as a club or who you are as a team and the athletes that you have and the people that you have, uh, it's definitely not going to be successful. Would it, is that is that your experience with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, that's sort of what I was referring to around the DNA, just as exactly what you've just said there, Duncan. So, um, you know, culturally, people are people are countries are different. Um, you know, one thing I found in Ireland, I. I had a wonderful time in Ireland, but the players are different um, to what you know Australians are and other countries are as well. Um, extremely humble and but hugely dedicated and committed to what they're doing. Um, so again, I you know I, I think you need to understand what makes your country or your program or 
or your organization tick to be able to benefit from high performance or alignment or, or centralization, whatever term we choose to use. Yeah. Hey, one of the, one of the themes on this podcast uh, that I really like to share is, is dealing with failure and, and your relationship with failure, because, you know, as a coach or a leader, you're going to fail a lot. And I think having a healthy relationship uh, with failure and how to use that to hopefully propel you to success is a really important subject to to talk about. Would you would you mind sharing your relationship with failure? And do you have any particular failures that that may have set you up for future success that you wouldn't mind sharing? Yeah, I've got a fantastic relationship with failure. Um, yeah, I've had plenty of failures. You know, there's no denying that. So, um, I suppose. Uh, look, I lost more. I lost plenty of grand finals as a coach before I won any. Um, so, uh, you know, and I even had a Colts team that went through a whole season undefeated and missed the maximum points by one, and we lost a grand final, and we then we had two grand finals in a row and we lost those, and then you had to wait for the third one to finally win it. Um, so, yeah, things like that. I think. It's the old saying, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. But at the end of the day, you've you've still got to go back and look at why you failed um, and whether it's a failure or just a disappointment. Um, but, you, yeah, you know, I, I think it's really important not to not to fear failure. Um, if you if you are again, if you've got a good plan and you understand what you're trying to achieve and you're ambitious about what you're looking to do, you're always going to fail in some way, shape, or form. But go back and figure out, well, why why did we fail or why did I fail? And then, you know, execute a plan or do something for the next season that's going to minimise that risk. There's no guarantee of it not happening again, but you can potentially look at ways of minimising the risk of um, continued failure. It's Definitely. funny. It's funny. Uh, a season where you almost got the maximum points but lost the grand final was considered a, a, a failure in sport, and, and I guess it really is because in the shoot shield, uh, eleven coaches fail every year. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and yeah. and the reality is too. We're, we're talking about high performance, and again, my my interpretation of high performance is winning. You know, so uh, ultimately, it's a, it's about winning, um, and if you. If you've, you've got if you've got a wonderful high performance program and you know people are being paid a lot of money and everything else and you don't you don't win anything in 10 years you, somebody's got to look at it and go well this is this probably isn't the high performing program that we potentially think it is absolutely hey yeah. is it important for coaches to have a coaching philosophy one of the things they keep telling us at the coaching courses is you got to develop your philosophy and and you know write it down and think about it and uh, for me it changes every time I speak to another coach because I've like oh I like the way they go about things and you know is that is that an important thing to work out when you start coaching or as you continue to coach? Um, well, I could ask you the same question because you're a coach, but um, I think. I think um, it's important. It's important to have a coaching philosophy. Yeah, I'd say it's important to have a coach philosophy, but it's going to change, and it's going to again. It's going to change in the environment that you're in. If um, if you're coaching, 
uh, you know, a, a lower grade side and the challenge, the challenge is just to get 15 or 20 players on a Tuesday and a Thursday and a Saturday. Well, your coaching philosophy is going to change compared to a first grade where there's greater um, commitment and dedication from everybody compared to a professional environment where at the end of the day, it's their job and they're, they're paid to do these things. So I think your coaching philosophy is definitely going to change depending on who and where and what you're coaching. But also it'll just change through general life coaching experiences. Um, I'm sure yours has probably changed on numerous occasions. I know mine has. It all it, it, it changes with every coaching job that you have. You're, you're validating my own opinions, mate, so thank you very much. Because <laughs> I, I, I look at it and go, well, as you said, as you, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you have to learn. And as you discover new information and new people and new ways of doing things and the game changes, I think that your philosophy should evolve to suit that. that that's been my, my relationship with that anyway. No, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And it's funny when you're talking about the coaching courses, I think, you know, one course 101 is you have to write down your coaching philosophy, as you said. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'll go back to when I was a coach educator as well, and you'd ask people to do that. And you'd look at people sort of looking around the room thinking, oh, God, what is my coaching philosophy? So, you know, again, that's okay. If you don't know what it is, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out at some stage. Can I ask you, just while we're talking about that, um, I did my level four this year and one of the boys in the room brought up imposter syndrome and I've gone, oh, thank God he's got it because I certainly felt it at the same time. And I've since discovered that most people at some point or another have some sense of imposter syndrome. Have you ever experienced that? And if you have, how did you deal with it? You might never. You might never have. <laughs> Personally, yeah. Even when you were beginning. No, yeah, that's a good question. Oh, pr probably, yeah. I guess so. Like when you when you're coaching, you don't know at all. Um, um. I think I've always. I I probably have. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but. Um, I think from a from my. The way my coaching developed, or even when I was very young coaching, like I'd be very determined not to not to go places where I didn't know. Um, you know, like I'm not a scrum expert, so I'm not going to pretend to talk to you about you know where you what your body shape should look like when you know a tight head's rolling or going through onto your hook or whatever it might be. You know, so. Um, you do know what you're talking about there, just quietly. Yeah, but you know, I'm not going to go out there and sort of coach it and pretend I'm the the expert at it. So, again, you know, to be a good coach, I think you need to be really honest. Um, and this would probably help you uh, prevent being the imposter because if you're very honest with yourself, but also with the players that you're coaching, because I, I think. As soon as you become one of these people, players see straight through it anyway. Um, and at the end of the day, what makes it like to be a good coach, you need to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And if you're not good at something, well, don't do it. Um, that's what other people are there for. So, you know, get get a if defense isn't your deal, 
get a good defense coach and you know have them do the job for you. Yeah. Mate, I, I agree. Well, one of the one of the attitudes I've taken on is if I don't know something, I'm gonna say I don't know something, yeah. but it's not okay to not go and find out if you have to know. And the the other thing that I've kind of used as a mindset, uh, as someone who naturally doubts himself quite a lot, is uh just outwork yourself doubt. So outwork yourself doubt. Know that you have done the work required to be good at what you are doing and just have that confidence in your in your mind. So I don't know if that'll help anyone, but but that's certainly something that's helped me there. Well, I think just on that too, Duncan, I, th- I think it's really good for a person to actually acknowledge that they don't know. So, you know, if you, if you, and you can, you should be um, confident enough in your own ability to say in a, in a forum of people that I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to find out. Absolutely. Or um, one thing that I would often do, I know you, you had, Bladesy on one of your podcasts recently as well. So my early days of coaching, um, you know, I I don't know. So I'm going to bring Andrew Blades down to figure this out for you. Um, and I do that with other people as well. Um, yeah. Mate, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to be brutally honest, Bladesy, I wanted to talk to Bladesy because I wanted to pick his brain on a couple of elements of scrum coaching. <laughs> so a, po- a podcast is a wonderful excuse uh, to talk to people that you admire just quietly. Uh, mate, we talked a little bit about what makes a good coach. W- what are some common mistakes that you see from young coaches? Something that I've observed, and I don't know if it's a similar experience to you, is is the not being comfortable with not knowing something and and not trying to find out. I feel like that halts a lot of guys' progress, whereas they'll go to their comfort zone where people may not question them and they won't try and learn things that they don't know or, you know, be uncomfortable and progress themselves. Um, what what have you seen? What are some common mistakes you see from young guys or girls? Yeah, look, I think you've you've got to constantly challenge yourself as a coach. Um Again, challenge your coaching philosophy, as we spoke about. Challenge the way you coach, your communication, every, everything, um, the way you work with your support staff and the way you you review, talk to players, all, all those sorts of things. Because, again, they can change. I think um, you have to be able to demonstrate you're invested. Um, I think that's massively important for the success of the team and the program. Um if people see how invested you are, that can quite often bring them along on the journey and have the same level of commitment with you. Um, it's a good question, Duncan, because again, um, you know, you see a lot of coaches and and they can be very impatient. They they want to be they want to be the next national coach, but they haven't coached first grade yet, you know, or they haven't coached professionally yet, or they haven't had the they haven't been sacked, you know. They haven't had the the trials and tribulations that can pretend, that go along with professional sport. So, and also, not everybody is cut out to be a head coach. Um, again, I think it's really important for young coaches to know what they're good at. Um, and if it's if it's a you know a scrum, you know, you you can you can be just a really good scrum coach. And you don't have to be a head coach. Um, again, I think a lot of people are, are too determined to run the show um, rather than just let me coach what I'm really good at coaching. And 
if you find those sorts of people and put them into your environment, um, yeah, they're extremely valuable. Yeah, mate, there's so much good stuff in that. It, from my personal perspective, and I might be oversharing, but when you put your voice on social media every week, you're going to overshare a little bit. I'm I'm wondering in my head whether I'm cut out to be a head coach. I, I don't know. I feel like it's something that if I had the opportunity to do that I would like to challenge myself because I feel like it is a challenge and a different challenge from just being a set-piece coach. But there's a lot of upside to just being a set-piece coach as well. So it's interesting. How have you got any have you got any tricks or tactics to actually work yourself out? <laughs> um, it depends what you like because there's um, I suppose you know if you love being on pitch and you know working with players on a daily basis and pouring over footage and analyzing and those sorts of things, you know that's not always well. A lot of coaches come through that pathway and some progress to be very, very, very good head coaches. Um, but then once they get into that head coach role, a lot of the things they loved doing, they no longer have the time to do. So um, they're, they're more into the potential administrative role, less time on pitch, more time on, um, you know, talking to players about, potentially, you know, life skills and all other things other than rugby, just to make sure that they're, they're you know, communicating with them and keeping them happy and everything else. So, yeah, it's it's a challenging environment. And, again, I think uh, you want to figure out what, what gives you the enjoyment of coaching. Um, and then once you know what that is, that could potentially determine what your path is. But the other thing you said uh, just before is is patience. And it's, I never had it as a player. I was in a very, I was in a rush to go uh, wherever I wanted to go, but I wasn't necessarily willing to do the work that it took to get to where I thought I wanted to go. Uh, as a coach, I'm trying to have the opposite uh, mentality where it's, you know, patient, learn skills, get better as you go. How important is is patience for coaching? It's massively important. Um, it's yeah, it's huge, I believe, because again, you see a lot of coaches that um, are in a hurry, too much of a hurry, <clears throat> and um, if things don't work out for them, that's potentially the end of their coaching career, or they or they give up. Um, so again, I think it's really important for you know coaches who want to make a career out of it to be patient around when's the right time to take this next job or when's the, right, when's the right time to even apply for that job. Um, I'd always encourage coaches to apply for it. You don't necessarily need to take it, but to go through the process of um, an interview or whatever it might be is important because it's just good good development for them. Um, but if it's not right um, for them, well, you know, they don't need to take it because there'll, there'll be other jobs. So, and again, um, you know, it can be it can be difficult sometimes because you're walking into an environment where it might not always be what you potentially perceived it to be. Um, owners can change, CEOs can change, boards can change, all sorts of things can happen um, that make that can potentially make your coaching career a lot more difficult than what you what you potentially think it should be. So something I've observed just watching people from afar is that I feel like some people jump into jobs, as you said, maybe prematurely because they would like the paycheck rather than going, 
you know what? I'm going to wait for the right opportunity and the long term, uh, long term, the money will come eventually. Is that, has that been something that you've seen? Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. And again, when we were talking about being patient, the more patient you are, the more you learn. You know, you can go and coach with three or four different head coaches and you, you're going to, you're going to come out of that with greater experience and, and learning to be a better coach, whether you're going to be an assistant coach or a head coach, but you're going to pick things up that are going to put you in a better position to be more successful than, than what you would if you just jumped into something straight away, if you weren't ready. Mate, I, I, I feel like I could pick your brain for hours. I've got, I've got a few rapid fire questions, mate, and then, then I'll get you out of here. Do you, do you have any books that you'd recommend, podcasts, anything like that that you'd recommend? Um, books? Uh, well, yeah, books. Um, Andre, the Andre Agassi book's a good story. I don't know whether you've ever read that, but yeah. um, that's a really good story just around, you know, elite sportsmen and um, his challenges and the way he changed his game to continue to play into his 40s or whatever it was, you know, incredible athlete. Um podcast. I don't listen to too many sporting podcasts. I'm I'm more a crime and sort of reality type person, but um Do you have any you'd recommend? Uh, I've got some documentaries that I'd say that you should watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and again, they're they're not necessarily sport, like you know, obviously your Jordan and your Beckham's and those sorts of things that and your Red Bull cliff diving, those sorts of things. I, I love watching those from a documentary point of view. But um, a recent one I watched was uh, The Deepest Breath, which is around um, free diving. Incredible story. Um, just, and, you know, just the, the uh, commitment and the dedication of some of those people to get to where they are is, is mind-blowing, really. Free Solo, the fellow who climbed... That's amazing, uh, that one. Yeah, so those sorts of things are, excuse me, they're the sorts of things that probably um, interest me more than uh, watching something on, I don't know, cricket or rugby or whatever it might be. Mate, the, that free solo documentary is something that I will put on from time to time whenever I need a kick in the ass because that is, that's an incredible story and, you know, you're sitting on the edge of the couch for the hour and a half there watching it. yeah. Yeah. Mate, is there any frequent advice that you give young whippersnappers like me coming up in the coaching ranks? Any any words of wisdom that you'd pass on? No, not really. I just, you know, just encourage people to, you know, stay true to themselves and continue to learn and seek advice. Um, remain humble. Um, you know, do what do what makes you happy and um and ultimately if you know if you want to be a successful coach will position yourself to be a successful coach. Mate, what, what's that's, that's I think that's easier done if people, you know, ask a lot of questions and remain humble and, you know, go searching for the right opportunities. That's mate, couldn't agree more. The, the thing that I've, uh, I listened to this on a Jordan Peterson podcast the other day is encourage people to ask the stupid questions, ask yeah. the stupid questions. Cause you, you get a hell of a lot of answers, you know, certainly more than if you don't ask questions. Hey, mate, last question. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. What, what advice would you give an 18-year-old Anthony Eddy? <laughs> uh, choose a different career. <laughs> no, I wouldn't really. I've had, a, I've had a great time 
um, involved in rugby for a number of years uh, and hopefully continue to be so for some time yet. Um, oh, look, I uh, always expect the unexpected. There you go. I love it, mate. So I think um, co coaching can be um, a cutthroat business sometimes. So you, you want to uh, prepare players to expect the unexpected. So at the same time, coaches should expect the unexpected. And that's the... Um, that's the advice I would have given an 18-year-old Anthony Eddy. Yeah. Mate, great way to end. Where can people find uh, Symmetry Sports? Have you got a website online, social media? I do, yep. That's on um, uh, Instagram. And also there's a website, symmetry-sports.com. Beautiful, yeah, mate. We'll make sure that gets out there as well. Um, mate, thank you. A pleasure. Yeah, no, it's great. Thanks, Duncan. Really appreciate that.